Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Every business owner connects with other business owners about business. Like they're used to that. So what can you do to take the relationship to the next level? I think at the end of the day, we all want deep, meaningful, personal connection type relationships. And we live in a time and an era where those are increasingly more and more rare. And so I think the opportunity for someone who's willing to create those kind of meaningful connections and grow it is incredible. And the crazy thing is all the research and the data proves it again and again across every industry imaginable. It is so critical. Like I will tell you, I've made 100% of all the money I've ever made from relationships that I took two, three, four, five levels deeper than the initial connection. Meaning, let's say I met someone in a business context, they became a business acquaintance. But if I took it deeper and deeper and deeper, then the opportunities expanded into the multi-millions. And in so many times, I can't ignore it. And this is what you talk about in the book. But not only that, we could talk for five hours about this book because I believe so much how these principles apply to every area of life. So on the podcast, I'm going to introduce Joey Coleman, not only a good friend, but you just came out with a great Wall Street Journal bestselling book. First off, welcome, Joey. Thank you, James. Thrilled to be here. There's so many stories we have to talk about before we get into the book. <laughs> but I want, And before I even say the title of the book, I do, the book title almost sounds businessy, but 
I when I read it and looked through it, and I I know you and I know the topics very well because I've heard you speak about these topics. I want to uh, take these topics and apply them to every life circumstance because I feel the advice you give applies to relationships, friendships, entrepreneurship, solopreneurship, being an employee and managing your relationships with your your boss and your and your coworkers. Uh, I don't know every every situation in life. Being being a reporter and having these relationships apply to your contacts. Being an FBI agent and uh, having it apply to your your people on the street. I don't know. Sure, I I totally agree with you. I mean, at the end of the day, the core uh, foundation, if you will, of the entire framework that I talk about in the book is the human condition. Yeah, this book is very much. I mean, for a while, I've done a series of podcasts about the whole idea of influence and persuasion. You know, I had Robert Cialdini on. I had on um, Scott Adams, who spoke about you know his his adventures in hypnotism, and he talked about you know how he, his theories on Donald Trump's you know adventures in, <laughs> sure, in hypnotism. Sure, sure, no. um, had on a lot of people in the in the in the in the business of influence and persuasion. And I'm fascinated by it, and I think this book very much ties that in. So so the book's called Never Lose a Customer Again, Turn Any Sale into Lifelong Loyalty in 100 Days. I actually, I think this title is great because it's so dead on with what you talk about and what you believe in and how you advise companies. But when I read it, all I'm seeing is how to, you know, not manipulate, but how to basically be influential, have this kind of charismatic, influential uh, gravity around you in every situation you find yourself in. And I think that is so important. It's it's critical. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we all want deep, meaningful, personal connection type relationships. And we live in a time in an era where those are increasingly more and more rare. And so I think the opportunity for someone who's willing to implement some of the principles I talk about in the book is to create those kind of meaningful connections, whether that's with their customers, with their employees, with their coworkers, with their significant other, doesn't really matter who you apply it to, but by focusing on the relationship, the opportunity to take that relationship in new ways and grow it, I think is incredible. And the crazy thing is all the research and the data proves it again and again across every industry imaginable. It is so critical. Like I will tell you, I've made 100% of all the money I've ever made from relationships that I took two, three, four, five levels deeper than the initial connection. Meaning let's say I met someone in a business context they became a business acquaintance or they became a, a small customer. But if I took it deeper and deeper and deeper, then the opportunities expanded into the into the multi-millions. And in, in, in so many times, I can't ignore it. And this is what you talk about in the book. But not only that, relationships, both, you know, romantic and friendships and, you know, just all my dealings with everybody. Like this is really a book about charisma and I have a great story about you uh which is how we first off I just it's just a total tangent but you you mentioned like relationships how many uh how many close friends do you think a person should have? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, if you- I, I, I know it has nothing to do with yeah, your book. Yeah, no, I, I think what's interesting is if you look at, I think it's uh, Dunbar's Law or Principle or that Which talks like about 150. 150 um, but that's and, like acquaintances. Acquaintances. You know, what, what's interesting is 
my thinking on relationships and friendships has evolved over time. I used to believe that every relationship needed to stand the test of time and you really needed to focus on making it a lifelong relationship. And then I don't know if it's because I got older or because life got real. I realized that if you have a handful of people from each phase of your life that you continue to stay in touch with over time, that gives you the depth and the color of the long-term relationship, mm. but you don't need to take all of them with you. So uh, what, what you I, mean, all I, them with you all the, so for example, I think back to high school and there are a handful of people from high school that I am still in very close communication with, but the majority I'm not. And that's okay. It's not a criticism of those people or the relationship we had. It's just, I'm at a very different point in my life. They're at a different point in their life. We're not in high school anymore. So things have evolved. You know, we're here recording in New York. Last night, I had the pleasure of staying with a friend of mine from college. And she and her husband have a place here in the city. And I messaged him last minute and was like, hey, would it be possible to stay with you? I crashed on their couch. It was absolutely incredible getting the chance to catch up with someone that I really haven't spent one-on-one time with since I was in college. Like we, I went to her wedding, she came to mine. You know, we've had those times together, but it's what are you doing to continue to keep those relationships going? Whether that's the occasional text message, shooting a video, sending them a card, you know, whatever it may be, to continue to have little touch points over time so that if they come to a bigger ask or a bigger conversation, like, can I crash at your house on 48 hours notice to sleep in New York? It's not a surprise. And even I, I found myself asking my incredible wife, Barrett, I said, as I was leaning into this, you know, should I should I reach out? It's kind of short notice. And And she said, what would happen if this friend from college did the same? What if she was in Colorado and found herself in town for, you know, two nights and was like, hey, is there any way I could crash at your place? What would you respond? And I was like, absolutely, 100% without hesitation. There's a difference. In Colorado, you have an extra bedroom. This is true. This is true. In New York, you probably don't. So exactly. People people get the exact square footage they need. (laughs) Exactly. So I did end up sleeping on the couch, which was a lovely couch, and it was great. And I actually had the- Couch technology has improved over the past Couch technology has improved. And because I know you're big about gratitude and being thankful, I actually, um, our mutual friend, UJ Ramdas and Alex Icon, who did the five-minute journal, I actually wrote in my five-minute journal this morning, I'm thrilled- that at 45, I still feel like it's a gift to be able to sleep on a couch that I haven't gotten so- Sleep on a couch with a college- With a college friend. friend. I mean, not with, it, but Yeah, in college the college friend's, friend's uh, uh, apartment because of what that means. It means, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for having a roof over my head. I'm thankful for having a pillow and a sheet to, to sleep on. I'm thankful for a relationship that started when I was 18 and is still alive today when I'm 45 oh and how God, we've Joey. each grown and evolved. So Joey, here's the thing. I feel like only you could say all of this <laughs> and we'll get to that in, in a second. Like, first off, I consider, when's the last time we, we saw each other in person? I think the last time we saw each other was probably at Mastermind Talks. Yeah, so maybe like two, two years, years ago, ago, I think. And probably the last time before that was four years ago. Correct, or, yeah. Or three years yeah, ago. Yeah, three years ago, yeah. we. I mean, our relationship, I think, in some ways is kind of an example of what I talk about in the book. Yeah, like I consider you, it's weird because- I we're obviously don't we we haven't seen each other in two years until today. But I feel like I could call you and say, "Hey, Joey, I need your advice about something." And you know, 100%. like and there's very few people like that. Like 
for instance, you did this book partially with the help of, of Tucker Max. Yep. Tucker's another guy. I see him once every year or so. I just saw him about a few weeks ago, actually. And yet I could feel I could call him right now and, hey, I need your advice and he can call me and, and so on. 100%. Uh, I think that's, to me, in my own personal definition, that's the definition of a close friend. Um, it's funny, speaking of the book, when I originally pitched the book, I came into New York and I met with a bunch of publishers and they were all interested in one page in my proposal. The page of my proposal listed 100 names. Your name was on the list. A bunch of other of our mutual friends were on the list. And they all asked, well, what is this list of names? And I said, here's the deal. These are all people that I know will help me promote the book. I haven't asked them. I'm not going to ask them. But they will help promote. And one of the publishers, uh, to, to be clear, not the one I ended up going with um, so that nobody thinks I'm talking out of school about them, but one of the, the publishers I met with said, well, how do we know this is, what do you mean about this list? What's it mean? I said, if you were to call any name on this list and that person was in a meeting and someone were to walk in and hand them a cell phone and say, Joey's on the phone, number one, they would know who's calling and number two, they would take the call. That's my definition of whether someone knows me or not and is a friend. So I feel the same way about you. I feel like if somebody walked in and they said, Joey's on the phone, will you take the call? You would take the call. It's so funny because you're not Joseph, you're Joey. So you are the only Joey I know. I'm probably the only Joey anyone knows over the age of like seven. Yeah. You know, and so, and people ask me all the time, they're like, well, you, you actually put Joey on the cover of your book? That That's kind of childish. I'm like, well, on one hand, sure, if that's your belief system, I look at it as it's my name, it's the name I've had. I had a small stint where I went by Joe, it was not effective. Um, so I went back to Joey. Joe Coleman, though, feels much more FBI ish. Yeah, it, feel, it feels more government, it feels Which, more by the way, lawyer. We say you're an ex FBI. Well, agent. I'm, I'm ex, I, I spent time working for the Secret Service and for the CIA. Oh, okay. Right. Um, and had workings with the FBI during both of those. Are you allowed to say you used to work for the CIA? I am, yes. There are two types of employees at CIA there are covert employees and overt employees. I was an overt employee, so I can publicly say that I worked for them. Can't talk a lot about what I did for them, but I can say I you know, worked in counsel's office kind of advising on legal issues that the CIA might find itself in. So so, so I was saying though, you're, it's rare for, about your you know, sleeping on the couch at your friend's place. It's rare that someone can say that. I mean, maybe not, but I feel like I'm so bad at follow-up. Like in general, people, I find people are very friendly and people I've known in the past like helping me out if I ask them. Um, but I don't keep in touch with high school, college, maybe one person from grad school, nobody. I have a hard, I have a hard time. I, I, you work hard, I work hard. How much time per day do you spend keeping in touch with people from your past. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't think of it as like, oh, who are the two people from the past that I made sure that I connected with this week? I just try to, when I am in connection with someone, to try to make it as deep and meaningful and present as possible. So like you and I have had some, re- I like to think really deep, meaningful, what is life? How do these things work type conversations over, you know, I think about the dinner we had in DC. Yeah. I think about, you know, the lunch we had at Mastermind Talks. I think about these My random totally times. Changed You're like, time. it's com- yeah, it's been totally, totally different as has mine, but we've immediately gone back. That To me, that's a great thing about a, a really close friend is you pick up the conversation where you left it off. Neither of you has to feel guilty about the lack of communication since the last meeting right. because it's like, hey, we're here again. Thankfully, the universe has allowed us to cross paths once more. Hopefully, it will allow for more in the future. Let's make the most of the time we have. 
That's a really good definition because I find so many people drop me if I don't stay in constant touch. And then I don't know what to do. Like maybe they were friends at one point and then suddenly I don't understand that they're not friends. It's because I didn't immediately respond the last time they texted me, but like life happens. Life happens. And, happen and, and, life. and we all, I, I would be willing to posit that most of the people listening have relationships in their life where they feel like they're doing the heavy lifting and they have relationships in their life where they feel like someone else is doing the heavy lifting and they're the beneficiary. Uh, years ago, I grew up on one of seven kids and I uh, had the assignment to interview my parents about parenthood. And, you know, as one of seven kids, like they're, I think it's fair to say that's borderline expert. I mean, probably you, they certainly have more data points than the average set of parents. And I remember asking uh, my mom, you know, what, and dad, what's the secret to a successful marriage, to successful, you know, raising kids together? And uh, my dad said, well, marriage isn't a 50-50 game. It's not a 50-50 relationship. It's a 90-10 relationship. One person's given 90%, one person's giving 10%. And my mom said, yeah, it just depends on the day. And in the ideal, there's some days where you're the one given 90, some days you're the one who's only given 10. There may be days where you're both giving 90 and then the relationship's at 180, or there may be days where you're both given 10 and then the relationship's only at 20%. Wait, I, I want to I write that down. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to just keep on, I'm going to keep on writing down words of wisdom. Um, that's such great advice. And I heard that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, I feel like I've just heard the wisdom of relationships that can be applied in any scenario. Why do, I feel like New Yorker, like you're from Iowa. I feel like New Yorkers don't talk like that. Like, like <laughs> I feel like it takes some Midwestern, hardworking, <laughs> you know, sure. salt of the earth type of person to say, son, it's 90-10. We just don't know. You just, it just depends on the day though. Who's the 90-10? Yeah, I think, here's the thing I think about uh, New Yorkers and people that, you know, I, I grew up in the country, right? So I'm not, a, to, in the interest of full disclosure, anybody listening, I'm not a farm kid. My dad was a farm kid. He would, you know, be relentless with me if I claimed to be a farm kid because I didn't grow up on the farm, but I grew up in the country and the farm's still in the family and that kind of thing. But um, I think the people in the city actually want that. I think they want they you. want it at a deep, deep level. The problem is there's this fear of who's going to go first. So one of the things that I think is really valuable in creating rapport and creating relationships is be the one to go vulnerable first and to be the one to say, hey, I I feel like I should be giving more to this relationship. I you feel know, like I'm not giving enough. And and lots of times if you go first and open the door you'll find that the other person is so ready to run through the door with you that you can't believe it. I, I don't even think that just applies to relationships. I think that applies to to art or creativity. Like I just look at my own writing and my own career in writing. Like I, from 2002 to 2010 or 2009, I wrote about finance. But as soon as I started going personal and vulnerable and saying, I look, I'm, I was in the finance industry where there were periods where I went broke and there was periods where I was suicidal and had these problems and so on. I feel that's when my audience, I didn't do this for audience. I did this for myself and to do good writing, but I feel my audience exploded a hundred X. 
Absolutely, because I And then, think, by the way, I felt everybody in kind of the business self-help category copied me. Fair enough. <laughs> but and, but well, I'm, I'm fine with that. Right, but I think what the, because if they did and everybody started being more honest and just being more open about their wins and losses, everybody wins. Like all of humanity wins when that happens. When we move from an era where we only post our highlight reel on social media to also posting our low light reel on social media, not from a whiny complainy point of view, but from a, hey, let me show you the downside of the life I live. You know, before we started recording, we were talking about travel. I spend a lot of time on the road. Right, Some you're, people, you're, uh, you're, you're a I'm a professional speaker, right? I get paid to give speeches. That's how I earn my living. That's what I do. And I spend about two and a half weeks out of every month on the road. Some people look at that and they're like, oh, it's so glamorous. Look at the places you get to go and give speeches in these nice resorts. And you only have to work an hour, right? You walk on stage, you talk for an hour and it's like, no okay, I get that that's your perception, but let me also show you some of the reality. Let me show you the 50 hours that went into preparing the one hour speech or rather the 45 years that went into preparing the one or hour speech. Or just traveling sucks. Or Yeah, or the how I got bumped from four flights before I got here or how the flight was going to be late so I rented a car and drove through the night to arrive at the hotel at 6.30 a.m. to do a sound check at seven to walk on stage at eight for 2,000 people. I want to I want to talk about this because, and then I have two tangents and then we're going to get to the book because the right. book's fascinating and I want to talk about it and it's related to this first story. So you and I met exactly five years ago, actually, exactly five years ago, almost to the day. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, now that I'm thinking about the calendar and the fact of when we're recording, yeah, it was almost five years to the day. So I was invited. It was it was the first uh, mastermind talks run by uh, a good friend of both of ours, Jason Gainyard, who's just a, a, a genius at networking and Incredible running these conferences. Human being, yeah. And um, the the premise of this first conference was he invited a bunch of speakers. You were one. I was one. Tim Ferriss was one. Ryan Holiday was one. Um, who else? Lewis House was Howes one. So a lot of my podcasts. Yeah, a lot, a lot, I, of, a lot I, of your podcasts. I, I made a lot of lasting connections from that conference, actually, that I, to Jason's credit, not every conference like, but I really felt like that was like a family kind of conference. I kept going back just when I needed actually solace in my life, I would go to that conference. But um, but that first time, it was that the premise was about a dozen of us were speaking and great speakers, you know, again, Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, you, um, many other people. And the premise was the audience would vote on the speech where they got at least $100,000 worth of value. You know, Somehow they would have to quantify how much value they got from this speech. And that per the winner would get $30,000 and uh, so as, a, as a prize, which I, which I figured, okay, I'm going to go speak. And I literally... I thought about, I was scared to death. Like I was so frightened going into this and I enlisted the help of all these like behavioral scientists. Like, <laughs> what should I do? Oh, like, I love like, it. I remember literally a half hour before I went up, I was so scared. I walked out of the conference. I wasn't going to come back. I called up a friend of mine who was a professor of behavioral science at Georgia Tech. He got other professors and his students in a conference room and they all started throwing out ideas to me. Like one thing is he said, okay, there, now I remember exactly there were 13 speakers because I remember him saying yeah. this. There were 13 speakers. So that means whoever wins, it's only going to win by a vote or two because most people are going to just divide and then right. the winner will win by just a vote or two. So he said, the law of reciprocity, just give a dollar to everybody in the audience <laughs> or offer to split the $30,000 right. prize. Offer to split the prize, yeah. So, and then you'll get an extra vote or two and that'll be enough 
to win. Oh, that's and funny. and they had all sorts of ad- advice. Uh, you know, open it up to Q and A. Um, name people in the audience because people respond uh, more favorably when you say their name. Had all sorts of advice. Anyway, and then we had recently had on a guy uh, on the podcast, Barry Michaels, who didn't give me advice. I didn't know him personally at the time. Now I know him personally, but he had advice in his book also, which I did follow, which I'll describe. I think I described on the podcast with him. But this was the most I had given public talks for twenty years, and this was the most nervous I ever was for a public talk. And I went up there. I felt I gave an amazing talk. It was only thirteen minutes. Each talk was thirteen minutes. I, I had people laughing from beginning to end. Uh, it was one of my favorite talks I had it ever was an given. Amazing talk! I was in the audience. I loved it. But you won the contest, I and did. I will tell you the difference <laughs> between your talk and mine. My talk, your talk, also. My talk was very entertaining in the sense that I got everybody laughing, and I was vulnerable. I started off, you know, it's talk about entrepreneurship. I started off how entrepreneurship sucks, and I gave my story. I had people laughing. The entire time, I think I came across as likable. Uh, a lot of people came up to me afterwards and said they voted for me. I don't know if they did or not. You won because you act. When I thought about it, you actually gave a hundred thousand dollars in value. Like I remember sitting there when you were giving your talk and saying, "Huh." When I was running my um, ad agency business, I could have used this to make more than a hundred thousand dollars. Like you actually gave you know, millions of dollars in value, depending on the type of business. Thank you. And that's really the topic. I think that probably you winning that, uh, that talk contest probably spurred on your, your, your enthusiasm for this topic, which resulted in this book. 100%. In fact, so a little backstory on what was going on for me during that same time period. I was the only person on the list of speakers that no one in the audience had heard of. That's probably true. No one in the audience had heard of me. Like, and when Jason asked me, I was like, he told me the other people that were speaking, and it's you know, New York Times bestselling author, this major podcaster, this blah blah blah, this, and it was like accolade after accolade after accolade of all these other people. And he was like, and I'd like you to speak. And I said, okay, dude, I'm thrilled and I'm flattered, and yes, I would love to do that. But you do realize no one knows who I am. And he said, yeah, that's okay. It's he said, I think it's it's going to work well. I was like, okay. And I said, um, and I have a competitive streak in me. And I said, okay, well, I'll agree to it if you do me one favor. And you know, Jason's Canadian, right? So Canadians are, uh, as a sweeping stereotype, are, are very lovely, friendly folks. And uh, you know, the fact that I asked for something in return, he was like, oh, oh, okay, what? sure, what is that? And I said, well, tell him I'm coming for him. And he's like, "What?" I said, "If you're, if this is a competition, I'm, I'm coming to win. Like, I'm excited. Like, let's do this." And he said, "Okay, okay." And we kind of laughed about it. I kid you not, James. In the back of my head, I had spoke, I had used the techniques, the first hundred days techniques that I talk about in the book, with the clients in my agency for about a decade at that point. But I had only spoken on it publicly once before. And so this would be the second time that I ever spoke publicly on it. And I thought that this had the potential for a book. I thought it had more legs beyond just the individual consulting clients I was working with. Um, and I actually made myself a promise. I said, if I win, I'll believe in this idea. Like I'll believe 100% in the idea and I will take it and I will build a speaking business out of it and I will build a book out of it and I will grow it. And... Thankfully, it worked out that way. Well, it's interesting because I had built and sold several businesses. I've had many clients, customers, 
investors, all sorts of types of people. But I never thought about relationships in the way you described in your talk and in this book. But I will add one more thing to your talk, which is that you had at one point in the talk, basically pictures of the families, right? If I'm remembering correctly, of almost everybody in the audience. And you would name them like James Aldershaw, here's your daughters. And like- that technique works. It does. Like, it does because it, it creates the personal and emotional connection. So what happens like, is people think, oh, this is a speech about business. What's the $100,000 value? And the premise of the speech was you have to connect with people at a personal level. Sometimes you can connect with them about their business, and that's great. But every business owner connects with other business owners about business. Like they're used to that. So what can you do to take the relationship to the next level? I think, as I recall, I talked about, you know, uh, Ryan and Sam Holiday's goats. And I talked about your daughter and I talked about other, you know, one of your daughters. And I talked about, you know, the relationships and where people went on vacation and what they like to do. And all of these things that had nothing to do with their business accomplishments, but had very deep personal connection right. so to that's their a great life technique. accomplishments. Exactly. It's like all you needed was those one or two votes. All you needed connected is, to exactly, that. and you're good to go. And the crazy thing, and uh, this is something I... I think social media is a really interesting tool. I believe that most people use social media as a broadcasting tool and instead they should use it as a listening tool. So the way I love to use social media is anytime I'm going to meet with someone, anytime there's going to be a conversation, phone call, a pitch, whatever it may be, I spend at least 10 minutes on their social media profiles in advance of the call just to see what's going on in their life. I, I, I do that as well. Like, I think that's happening? an important technique. Because, because then it gives points of reference and points of commonality. And you know you obviously want to pay attention to this. Um, how you message it and how you position it is what keeps you from sounding creepy and stalkerish. But the moral of the story is we live in this incredible era where our customers, our friends, our colleagues, our coworkers, our bosses, our prospects are all broadcasting what matters to them if we're just willing to listen? You know, can I tell you a story related Please. to that? This is again a tangent. I, I I'm just isn't, I, but I, I feel like anybody who listens to the show knows. Like it's a show of tangents, which is part of the yeah. Genius but I really do want to get to the okay. We'll get to the book. But there's, there's now there's two more tangents. This is a funny story related to just what you said. So I was flying back from Miami. I had taken my daughter on a vacation to Miami uh, a couple months ago, and I was flying back on a very small airline and the airline accidentally emailed me the night before and said, Ms. So-and-so, let's just say Ms. K, uh, your seat confirmation is as you, you know, is this. And I wrote back and said, oh no, you have the wrong person. I just want to confirm my seat confirmation. And they said, okay, sorry about that. So I knew the names of one of the people on the plane and there were only 10 passengers in total on the plane. Okay. So I spent three hours Googling everything about this person. <laughs> and my my daughter even comes up to me and says, Daddy, what are you doing? Because we're like watching a movie and I'm doing all this Googling and and I'm reading obituaries of her grandparents. I'm 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 listening to the recordings of speeches her parents have made. And and I said, Molly, don't there's a one in a hundred chance I'm gonna be able to pull off a great prank tomorrow. And like, just in case this woman is sitting next to us, I'm going to say I'm psychic and come up with all sorts of stuff. (laughs) I love it. And so it turns out I was wrong about who the passenger on the plane was. It wasn't the woman I thought. So so I had to figure out who this Ms. K was. Of course, you don't have a lot of detail. It was an odd name though, and there was only a few possibilities. And so I I honed in on one, but I, I was wrong. It was not her, it was her mother. And- 
what happened was um, her father uh, came to drop off the mother as the pastor. So, so anyway, the, the, the woman I thought was not in, involved in the story at all anymore, but the mother was. But I had fortunately Googled everything about the mother, Googled everything about the father, Googled everything about the grandparents. I knew where their family had come from, what they did in New York 60 years ago. And the father, who wasn't even a passenger on the plane, so I had no reason to know anything about him, I, 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 he came up to me. Um, he said, are you James Altucher? And he, I said, yeah. And he said, oh, I love your podcast and whatever. And I said to him, listen, because now I knew everything about him, even though he wasn't sure. a pastor of the plane. <laughs> sure. I said, listen, and my daughter's right there. I said, you know, I'm getting this weird flash. I really apologize this. I've never had this happen to me before. Can you take my passport for a second? And he said, he's like, uh, yeah. And he took my passport and I said, just open it up. And can you look at the birthday and tell me if that means anything to you. And he said, he opens up the passport and he says, oh, January 22nd. Oh yeah, it's my birthday. And, uh, cause I remember that his birthday the, was the, uh, same, the same birthday. Sure. And he just, um, handed me back the passport. He's like, huh? And, and then he just walks off. And I'm like, I, my daughter was like, what the hell just happened there? <laughs> like you either, Prove to him the existence of God and psychic powers or whatever, or you're a strange, creepy maniac who Googled everything about him for some right. reason that he could not possibly figure out why. Like he could not possibly know the airline had right, accidentally right. said. Exactly. So, and either way, my get it, my gut instinct is you had fun. I had fun. I had fun. And he did write me the next day, finally. I'm wondering the whole time, why wasn't he like amazed? <laughs> like, why wasn't his mind blown? Right. He did write me the next day and said, you know, we should have coffee next time I'm in New York. And by the way, how did you know that about my birthday? Like, that was so weird. Funny. So anyway, tangent number one. Tangent number two, uh, we were talking about this earlier. You've been stopped for driving violations 81 times, but you've only gotten three tickets. And this is related to your book. We're going to use this to start to segue into your book. <laughs> You, it's be, you 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 have a combination of charm and of course you've you've worked in you know overtly for the CIA for the for the executive branch for the um uh, uh, uh you've been a corporate defense attorney um but I think it's it's your your charm and charisma overall how did you get off of seventy eight tickets so uh. Speaking from someone with a suspended license, I want to know. Fair enough, yeah. So I've been pulled, yes, I indeed, I've been pulled over 81 times. Uh, I've had six tickets written and three of them stuck. And the reason why I think I have such a good batting average, so to speak, of not getting tickets, is, there are a couple things at play. Number one, I feel like I have a pretty keen understanding of the human condition. Um, How does I, that help you? Uh, well, you will tell you. Police tell officers story. are human too. Okay. So, but we, they wanna. They have an incentive. They have an agenda. They wanna give you a ticket. Well, right. But I believe there are three types of police officers, and depending on the type of police officer, their agenda shift. So we can talk more about that. Additionally, um, I grew up the son of a criminal defense lawyer, so I don't. I know the difference in threshold between you know getting a speeding ticket and going to a jail. There's a lot of space between getting a speeding ticket 
and going to jail or going to prison. But the average citizen feels like those things are right next to each other. Right, because they get stopped by the police. And like, I just know from my own experience, my heart starts to pound. Absolutely, they, they say, get very nervous. They're like, oh my gosh, if I say the wrong thing, I might be thrown in cuffs and you know dragged out of the car in front of my family and like put in happen, a prison. And, and it can happen, right? And that that's a possibility. People always ask me, they're like, well, well, could the police arrest me? I'm like, the police can always arrest you. Always, whether it sticks or not is a separate conversation. But can you be put into cuffs and transported? Absolutely, anytime at their discretion. Right. Whether that later results in something on your criminal record or not is an entirely different conversation. But that fear, that angst around um, what kind of role law, law enforcement plays in society is what keeps most citizens behaving. So this is a good thing in a social society, right? We have a rule of law. We know there are laws. We know there are rules. If we break the rules, there are consequences. The challenge, I think, is the average American, um, for example, driver sees the consequences being much greater than they actually are. My theory is if I'm willing to pay the money associated with a speeding violation, it's kind of the cost of doing business. So if I'm running late for a meeting and I know I really need to get to the meeting and I'm speeding to the meeting, as long as I'm not endangering other people on the road, which is a separate conversation, um, it's worth the dollars that I might get pulled over for speeding and I might have to pay the ticket. So if we do an economic analysis, it's a no-brainer. And so once you're pulled over though, what's your economic analysis? Well, once, you, once it's pulled and over- And what's the odds of being pulled over? In, so the odds of being pulled over are really small. Right, because how many times have you sped in your life and not been pulled over? Right, yeah, it's much, much forever. greater, right, all the time, right. So the odds of being pulled over are actually very small. The odds of that officer actually writing you a ticket decrease dramatically by how you handle yourself during the stop. So the thing I would say to to listeners, the number one thing you need to realize is, at least in this, again, this is my opinion. Yes, 81 times of sample set of data, but still my That's opinion. Statistically right? So statistically, it feels fairly significant. But it could be also just limited to you. Like It, you, could, it you, could just be me, you might right? Just, they might just say, this guy- Absolutely, Ab absolutely. And there's a lot of factors, you know, where I got pulled over, what I was driving at the time. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of facts, you know, tinted I, I versus non-tinted I just want to address the, the elephant in the room, which yeah. is- you're you're a white male. I'm a white think, male as well. I think it's these techniques different probably game. work differently. One hundred percent. No, you you are right, and I was going to make that point. Right. So I feel like you know this doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, but a couple of these things do. Number one, it is really hard to be a law enforcement officer. It's a difficult job. It's a scary job, and every time they pull someone over on the side of the road. I would posit that the number one thing going through their mind is, am I going to be able to walk away from this stop, right? Because what's in their mind is all the times that the law enforcement officer got shot by somebody in the car or driven over by somebody in the car. They're, they're going to worst case scenario. Crazy thing is we as the drivers are going to worst case scenario as well. What if this is the time they drag me out of the car and cuff and stuff me, you know? And so everybody's coming to, as they're doing what I like to refer to as the long walk from the car up to your window. They're tense and worried about what's happened, about to happen. You're tense and worried about what's happened. And then the window rolls down 
and we have two very tense human beings on the side of the road with cars racing by over a small stakes thing. Over a small stakes a, thing, a right? Ticket. Yeah, like a, a ticket, a fine, if, you know, especially if in a, like a speeding ticket conversation. So I think the first and most important thing you need to do is de-escalate the situation. The best way to de-escalate the situation: make sure the cars in park, make sure your hands are on the steering wheel, make sure you're not reaching around and fumbling around for stuff. Roll down the window before they get there, so your hand doesn't have to move. So while wait, your cars standing. in park. What? What's the second? You pull over. You put the car in park. Mm. Throw the flashers. Mm. Roll down the window and put your hands at ten and two. What's on 10 the steering wheel? Oh, okay, ten o'clock right and two yeah. o'clock on the steering wheel. Because now when that officer walks up, they know the car stopped, the flashers are on, which are an extra warning helping them because they're standing on the side of the road hoping not to get hit. And your windows are down, your hands are up on the steering wheel, they can see your hands, they have nothing to worry about, right? That alone de-escalates the situation incredibly. Next, always refer to them by a formal name. Hello, officer. Um, you know, what seems to be the problem or they may pull up and, you know, you let them talk first, but the goal should be to use the word officer in every sentence. Yes, officer, no officer. Why is that? Because it shows respect, it shows deference, and it allows them in their mind to categorize you as an upstanding law-abiding citizen Okay. from the beginning. Before that, we've even gotten to the conversation of whether you were speeding or not, they immediately so like they, know what's you, going you on. So you confirm their notion of status. Correct. Correct. And so now you've done two things. You've de-escalated the situation and you've elevated their status. That's a good technique for anytime you're in a conversation with any human being, right? And whether it's on the side of the road, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's in the bedroom, whether it's in, you know, over dinner with the kids, whether it's with the interview with the, t the principal or the teacher of your kids at school, de-escalate the emotion and elevate their status. You know, it's it's interesting. One time in 1999, I was in Texas looking for investors for a project, and um, we, my partner and I, we would we would meet all these people who were just in their cowboy hats, and they were just like, "Shucks, I'm just a poor, <laughs> you know, farm boy or whatever." Right. And like, meanwhile, that would be like a billionaire. Yeah. Like everybody just downplayed. You know, you're the smart guy from New York. Like, what do you have to say? Like, yeah, everybody just downplayed yeah. how hard they had worked and built the fortunes they had built up and so on. Yeah. But, but okay, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. But what what I imagine that did is it made you feel very comfortable, very appreciated. Then you wanted to share your thoughts and it also endeared you to them. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, wait, but but what's, what's your thought? What's your story? It's one of the things I love about living in Colorado. I've not been to a business meeting in Colorado with someone who had a tie on. That's because right? they're all high. Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but it's like everybody is in jeans and a sweater and hiking boots and relaxed. And when someone in Colorado asks you, what do you do? The answer they're looking for is ski or snowboard. That's funny. They're not looking for an answer of like, oh, I'm an investor. Oh, I run this business or whatever. So back to the police, de-escalate the situation emotionally, elevate their status, and then just have a conversation. And I, th this kind of gets into the 201 techniques. Um, have a conversation that either acknowledges what's gone wrong, or if you don't know what's gone wrong, be honest about that too. So I got pulled over one time and I was um, driving a zip car, you know, little yeah. rental cars you could have. And so it says zip on the side of it. I was speeding. It was a Mini Cooper. It was right after the movie, The Italian Job came out. 
And I'm racing home and it's my birthday. And I like, I've just come from this meeting where I landed this big deal and I'm taking the rest of the day off and I'm soaked and I'm flying. I'm living in Washington, You're inspired DC. by the movie. I'm inspired by the movie. Around. I'm speeding, I'm flying, I'm feeling good. And I get pulled over. And the cop is like, what do you think what's going on here? And I said, officer, I have a feeling that I was speeding. I said, to be completely candid, I think I took the branding on the side of the car a little too literally. And the fact that I was driving a Mini Cooper and the movie, The Italian Job just came out. Now, I thought that was kind of funny and de-escalating but and But by the way, that, there's, there's an interesting technique there, which is that you were very specific. Very specific. Very specific. And I could tell that this- More specific than you had to be. You correct. You just answer his question. Totally. You, you, and I could tell that this didn't work. This guy really? was like, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, and to be honest, officer, and I'd already given him my driver's license and registration at this point. I said, and to be honest, it's also my birthday. I'm excited to get to a birthday party that some friends of mine are throwing for me tonight. And he's like, it's your birthday? And I said, yeah, you have my driver's license. You can check. And he looks and he's like, it is your birthday. I was like, yeah. He said, huh. Okay. Slow it down. Happy birthday. That's great. Now, and he why let do, me go. Why do you think he asked? And then why do you think they always ask, what do you think you did? Because I think they want to, so many people open the conversation with denying everything they've done that when you admit what you've done, now, again, this is not legal but why advice. I want you to clear. deny. They, they don't want you to deny. Mm. They, they, but whether you deny or admit kind of lets them know what they're dealing with. If okay. it's an upstanding citizen and they're like, yeah, sir, sorry, I was speeding. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't do it. They haven't heard that on the side of the road in the last month. What they've heard is, no, you don't understand, or there's no way I was speeding, or I didn't see a speeding sign, or I think your radar might be broke, or let me see your radar gun, and do, do, do. And you know, they get excuse, excuse, excuse when you just say, yeah, I'm sorry. You got okay. me. Now, where do they have to go? Reciprocity tells us they're going to want to match your energy and they're going to go, well, it's all right. You know, where all these things happen or whatever. Oh, you need to slow down, you know? Um, so what if, okay, now they, they so you so let's say the average case, they say, um, what do you think you did? And you said, I was speeding and I'm sorry. I don't know if you say I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, and 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 lots of times I will say I'm very deferential, very you know continuing to give status. You know, officer, I was speeding, and here's why, or here's the circumstance. Again, it becomes very case by case uh -huh. in that environment. Um, but you just kind of address the elephant in the room. Like, yeah, you had me on the side of the road because I did something wrong. There have been other times I've been pulled over where I didn't know why I was pulled over. What do you say? They'll then? say, "Do you know why you were pulled over?" I'd be like, "Honestly, officer, I don't." I said, "I'm really sorry. I thought I was going the speed limit." You know, I thought we were good. And one time an officer said, yeah, you were, but your taillight was out. And I was like, wow, I had no idea it was out. To be honest, when I got in the car, it's my practice to walk around the car and make sure that all the lights are working before I drive. And I guess it burned out while I was driving. I don't know what to tell you. I had no idea, but I'm, you're right. That's a violation. I'm more than happy to get that fixed. And, you know, and first thing tomorrow. So let's say it's speeding or that one. They say, well, look, I got to write you a ticket. And they start writing the ticket. If they, if they start writing the ticket, I say, you know, lots of times I'll say, you know, officer, I appreciate, you know, you've got to write the ticket. Um, this is where it gets to kind of the graduate school level of on the, uh, on the side of the road. I'll say things like, um, because I used to be a criminal defense lawyer, one thing uh, that I know about how the criminal justice system works, but is also something you know about the basis of humanity is no one likes paperwork. No one likes paperwork ever, 
on the planet, any human being. And so the more paperwork they think there's going to be, the less likely they are to write a ticket. Here's what I mean by that. I have said on the side of the road, officer, I appreciate that you have to write this ticket. I hopefully you appreciate that I'm going to have to fight it in court. Now that is a very calculated risk because that then starts to escalate the energy again, right? And to decrease the status you're giving them. But at this point, if the pen is already dancing across the paper, what do I have to lose? Maybe they write another ticket. Maybe they give me a bigger fine, but it's kind of like we're we're already done at this point. Uh, And what I've noticed happen is lots of times they'll stop writing and they'll say, what? Because again, I've caught them off guard. Most people resign. You don't just say I have to fight in court. You say I have to fight- I'll say, I have to fight it in court. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? And say, well, you know, actually full disclosure, I'm a former criminal defense attorney and I'm going to challenge this in court because of X, Y, Z, and then whatever related to the ticket that they're writing for me. But like, and I'll what if you're clearly speeding? You know, you, well, then we're still going to challenge. I mean, the crazy thing about the law is you're innocent until proven guilty. So even if I was speeding, they have to prove I was speeding. But what do you say what, as a reason to them? So to, to reason to them, I might just say, I don't think I was going as fast as you believe I was going, um, but I guess we'll get to sort this out in court and we'll let the jury decide. And then I say the jury, not the judge, which sends a clear message to them that I'm going to be requesting a jury trial, which takes a longer time. And jury trials, in my experience, have a tendency to fall in the favor of the person who's accused of speeding more than a judge trial. Like judges, many judges, not all judges, I want to be careful here. Many judges are predisposed to say, well, if a ticket has been written, clearly something must have happened, even though it's innocent until proven guilty. It depends on what level is the ticket. Is it a local ticket, a, a state ticket, a federal ticket? Where where are the things? And lots of times when I let the officer know that we're going to get to go to court, what that means is a lot more paperwork for them. And it means that they're not out driving around, which is what they want to do. They're sitting in a courtroom giving testimony, which is definitely not what they want to do. So I've had officers actually rip the ticket up on the side of the road and say, fine, then are you going to slow down? Absolutely, officer, I will slow down. I've learned my lesson. But do they ever, Get out of they here. ever like see what you're up to and they and they start getting really angry? Yeah, six times they wrote tickets. <laughs> and, but did you know, they do anything like, further? Like, did they was- no, no. I, you know, I've I've never been you know pulled out of the car or anything. Like I said, I have a lot of respect for law enforcement. I think it's a difficult job, um, and I try to do all the things to give them no reason to take it to the next level. What have you said beyond the jury trial? Like, have you had to take it to the next level and escalate it a little more? At that point, once I say that the the signal to them is, and the signal to me, we're done discussing this here. We'll have the next conversation like about this. You don't this say you're going to have to give testimony. You nope, don't remind them nope, what it means. I, I just tell them we're going to have a jury trial. They okay. know what that means, right? And then I just sit back and I say, write the ticket. Great, thank you, officer. Appreciate your time today. Appreciate the the job you're doing. I, I know it's a difficult job. I feel like like that is a great. That's a real life hack, right? So people are pulled over all the time, and that and and three out of three tickets out of eighty one, I would have gotten eighty one out of eighty one, <laughs> and that's a great life hack. I feel like someone should write like you know, law, you know, life hacks that lawyers use or something like that. I don't know what the title is, but like this could be stuff like this could be used for driving, for like marriage and divorce, for wills, for I don't know all the basics. I mean, what are what are the times we interact with the law? Like real estate, 
what are the times when we kind of have we interface with the yeah, law? Yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, contracts, uh, relationships, whether that's employment contracts, real estate purchase contracts, car purchase contracts, all of the things where we where yeah, we employment bump contracts. Into the nobody law. knows. Nobody like, everything's, knows. Everything's, and everything's thrown everything's in the weird. Small and it's like, what, I, do I have rights? Do I not? I'm signing this non compete. You know, what most people don't realize, and uh, again, this is, I want to be clear, this is not legal advice. This is Joey's business advice. Um, most of the non-compete clauses that employees are asked to sign are not actually enforceable. Sure, because slavery is illegal. Right. <laughs> and But the problem is the average upstanding law-abiding citizen signs that and goes, well, I agreed to it. It's kind of like the waivers you sign at schools, you know, that, oh, if you're going to be on the Corp, you know the you know uh, grade school basketball team, elementary school basketball team, and you get injured, you can't sue the school. Sign this waiver, parents. But, but this is well, where the justice actually, system. Actually, that's not the way it works. But, but this is the way the justice system is a little unfair. Like if you work for Ford and then you quit that and start working for GM, if Ford sues you, it's not like you could sue back because you don't have the money. Right, right. I mean, there there is money plays a huge part in the justice system. Uh, let's just address it how it is. Race plays a huge part in the justice system. There are, there are big uh, factors at play here. But lots of times people, and this is, I think, the difference between entrepreneurs and non-entrepreneurs. And we have many friends, we're both entrepreneurs. We have many friends that are entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are willing to ask, why is it that way? And are willing to push the envelope and willing to question. Most people aren't. Now, the good news is for entrepreneurs is sometimes when you push, you find out that that thing you thought was a wall actually is just a mirage. It's not a wall and you get to go through. But there's also a consequence that if you push, you might not have the security or the certainty that the non-entrepreneur has. No, it's true. I always view a contract, either good or bad, as an opportunity. 100%. Because... There's always another side to the contract where you get to negotiate more. And if you do it right, you negotiate in your favor. Totally. Just come to the table as a grown-up. Because the, because Explain what you are trying to accomplish. Find out what they're trying to accomplish and write the contract accordingly. And about the hacks, one of the things that I think, if, if there was one piece of contracting advice I would give to everyone is include, write into the contract what happens on the worst day. What I mean by that is most contracts are written when everybody's feeling really excited about the project. They're feeling good, like, oh, look what we're going to make millions of clause. There usually is a gross negligence clause. But on top of that, I'd love to see a disillusion clause. Hmm. If this all goes to hell, how are we going to behave? What are hmm. we going to do? And be really hmm. explicit. Write it for the worst day. Write it for one when one of the partners goes through a divorce and suddenly their life is imploding and they don't want to be involved in this anymore. Write it for the day when um, somebody uh, in the business's child gets a debilitating illness and they can't be involved in the business anymore and they need a graceful way to exit. Write it for the way when somebody wakes up and they have a midlife crisis and they say, you know, I, I don't want to be in this business anymore. Instead of always writing for the best days, write for the worst days and outline exactly what's going to happen so that when you do get the worst days, again, it goes back to that first thing on the side of the road. You de-escalate the emotion. Oh, well, we don't have to sweat this. We've just moved to clause 38 in the contract, disillusion. Here's how it yeah, resolves. That's, that's Here's smart, how it goes. That's smart and, and, advice. Ev and everybody feels really good about it because they agreed to it when they were level-headed, not when they were freaking out in the moment. 
How do you do that uh, in a, let's say you're a marriage contract? <laughs> a really interesting question. I think you have those conversations in the beginning. You have the conversations when you're dating and you're thinking about getting married about, hey, if we ever get divorced, how would you like to see this play out? Without doing a prenup. Like with, I hate that yeah, concept Yeah, of I prenup. think prenups are really, I understand why, why some people use prenups. I think prenups are, are a dangerous thing because marriages, while they are quote unquote contracts, are contracts of the heart, not contracts of the mind or the wallet. They affect the mind and the wallet, but they are, they comp, their origin is in emotion, right? Whereas in a business contract, usually the origin is either in the mind or the wallet, not in emotion. Like emotions involved, they're all three are involved at all times. Um, I think you just have to have some really honest conversations about how are we going to handle this? How are we, you know, I, I had a friend post on Facebook recently that um, they were getting divorced and said, I know that in most divorces, there's a situation of who gets to keep what friend. Both my soon-to-be ex-wife and I have asked that we keep we all keep all of you, like you're our friends. And I don't know if they ever had that conversation, but I felt like in the way he wrote it, it said to me, this is an actual conversation they've had that they didn't want to lose the friends. So you got, you got to make this kind of book too. Mm. <laughs> like life hacks for all these different things. But now I really do want to talk right. about your book. Never lose a customer again. And you basically... Talk about how to build lifelong, and and again, customer, I think I'm going to use it as a placeholder for everything. I know you meant it specifically for customers, but I right. really think deep down you meant it for- Humans. Ne never lose a human again. Yeah, it's all the relationships. Like it's a business book written for applicability in business that can also be read into every aspect of your personal life. That said- Having run, let's say, an ad agency, a hedge fund, a fund of hedge funds, like all these businesses where I had many customers and investors and clients and people I had to cater to, I wish I had followed this advice because mm -hmm. I did lose customers in those first hundred days by not, by specifically not following this advice. Sure. And you have eight phases. I do want to go over all eight phases and I want to quickly talk about how it could apply to other life situations as well. Just I want to sure. be as general as possible. But, uh, uh, and then people should read the entire book for the, for the whole thing. And there's, there's at the end, I want, there's one more thing I want to get to you with, but okay. The eight phases of the customer experience, but let's just call them the eight phases of any relationship. Phase one, assess. Right. So in the business setting, this is where the prospect is deciding whether or not they want to do business with you. So some people think of this as marketing and sales. Some people think of it as prospecting, filling the funnel. Uh, in a personal context, this is when you first meet and they're trying to decide, is this the kind of person that I want to continue to invest time with? See, see, I my theory is whenever I met a customer, and again, my first um, agency business, this, this really applies a lot to agency type businesses, but to many types of businesses really. When I first would meet a potential client, my assumption always is they wanted a friend. So mm -hmm. they were stuck at their job with a lot of people they didn't like, and now they wanted a friend to talk to. So in my assessment phase, I was not necessarily in the business of providing them an agency service, although that was the the backdrop of it. I was really in the business of providing this person a, a new friend, 
which has its upsides and downsides. It forced me to wear a mask a little bit in those meetings, which sure. I can't do now, but I was able to do 20 years ago. Right, and I, and I think here, here's the thing. People come to any type of assess-type conversation with their own baggage and their own expectations. Both you as the person who's going to deliver the product or service or your side of the relationship and where they are. That's and, true. And I, I was think desperate to be liked. Yeah, and I and I think it and and so that's why I would imagine in those scenarios you saw their need for friendship because you had a need for friendship and that created a point of commonality. If your need was um, monetary success and you know they had a need for monetary success, well, then there's a point of commonality where we can do a joint venture and really go make a lot of money. Or you could show them how their project, uh, your, you doing their project will um, make them look good for their boss in ways Absolutely. that the other co co competitors would. Or, yeah, one, one of the biggest things that I think most people miss in their uh, conversations is how can you help how can you give the person as much certainty as possible that they're not going to experience a terrible consequence for choosing to do business with you? Right. Which is the, how can we make sure that you know you're not going to get fired by hiring me? And, and that's part of, I would say that's part of Robert Cialdini's answer the objections. 100%. So in terms of influence. He wrote the book on influence. Yep, He's been exactly, on this podcast. Yep. He has a chapter called Answer Their Objections as quickly as possible before they ask it. Exactly. But on top of it, it's, where do you... It, on top of it, I feel like there's a reciprocity uh, angle here. You're giving something at some point in the assessment. Yeah, phase. I think you want to give, and the you other thing give you, solutions. you want to give solutions. You want to give confidence, but you also, I think, want to let them know that you've done your homework. So one of the things that's really cool that listeners um, may not know is I walked into the studio today, and James handed me a root beer. And I talk about this in the book. I really only drink water and root beer. Those are the two things. I, I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink other sodas. I don't drink coffee or tea. Um, I pretty much just drink water. And then occasionally I'll treat myself to a root beer. The fact that James handed me a root beer upon arrival immediately made me feel appreciated. It made me feel that I knew he had at least read that chapter of the book. Um, I know James well enough to know that he's read the whole book, but it in that moment, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I found myself in a meeting not too long ago with someone who had read the book. We were sitting there and they said, yeah, I know I probably should have had root beer here. Sorry, I don't. And like in that moment, I was like, wait a second. It almost might've been better had you not said that you knew because what you actually just transmitted to me is I know what you really like and I know what you love and I know what makes you feel comfortable. And I didn't do that. I, I'm going <laughs> to give full credit. This is a team effort. Woo, Steve, team effort. All right. Steve, good. Steve Cohen, the producer of this podcast. Steve was all over the root beer. The root Thank beer. you, Steve. So I appreciate the root he, beer. He did a good job. But in job. that moment, immediately I felt like, oh my gosh, they know me. They, they like me, they appreciate me. And it took the, any anxiousness I had about doing the podcast and made it go away because it's like, okay, you're amongst friends. You had anxiousness doing this podcast? You, buddy, totally. Here's the thing. I think most people fail to realize how anxious everyone else is, huh. right? So you're my friend. You've been kind enough to invite me onto the podcast. I'm excited to be here. I want to do this and I want to do a good job for you. And so I know in the back of both of our heads right now, or maybe in the front of our heads, it's like, oh, have we, you know, do we spend too much time talking about the police stuff? Oh, what about this other stuff? The life hacks. But yeah, that's useful and it's applicable for some listeners. But what about the book? People want to hear about the book. Oh, the publisher might really want me to be promoting the book right now. Where does the book fit into this? Oh, but the book is more applicable. And it's like all these stories that are running in our heads 
you know, I know you have appointments after this. I have appointments after this. You know what I mean? All the stories that never get voiced. I'll, I'll tell you this though, because of the prior conversation, uh, people already want to buy the book because they see your exactly. wisdom. Fair and enough. And well, I appreciate saying that. that. Your best wisdom is in the book. Oh, but I, and I appreciate that. And that's where I think if there's a, a piece of advice I can give to everyone is don't think that the contribution you make to another human being is limited to your direct area of expertise. I found myself in a conversation with a billionaire a few years ago. Um, and it's pretty rare that you get to have talk. You, you have conversations with billionaires more than the average person, but it was, this was a pretty rare thing. Um, and this guy and I were having a talk and he was giving me a bunch of advice about my business. And to be very clear, my business is nowhere near a billion dollars, right? And he was giving me all this business advice and um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna change his name to, to protect him a little bit or provide a little anonymity. Let's just call him uh, Frank. And I said, you know, Frank, look, I really appreciate you know, how much you've given to me. He's like, and I said, I feel like I have nothing to give back to you. Like you've told me so much about business and I've learned so much for you. What, where can I help you? Is, is there anywhere I can help you? And he said, yeah, can you tell me about relationships? Hmm. I said, well, what do you mean? And he's like, I've observed you and your wife at the time my wife Barrett was my fiance. He's like, I've observed you and your fiance. You guys seem to really love each other. And I've got, I'm married and I have some kids and I've got two mistresses and they have kids. And he's like, I just don't know how to do this. And he was really honest and really vulnerable in that moment. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, the thing that I thought I could help him with, you know, business, first hundred days, customer experience is not at all what he found interesting about the relationship. So I have a question for you there. You know, that's the sort of thing where he... Obviously, his problem is not just relationships. It's a whole holistic thing, probably. Like, Absolutely. You know, all his relationships, because that's how he values relationships, that he's having all these mistresses and kids. Parenting is an issue. He probably has legal issues with all these things. He probably has health issues because he's got stress. When, you, uh, so, when you're trying to live multiple lives, yes, it's stressful as can be. So I feel like there's a, a I'm wondering if you consider this, there's probably a door open there for you to charge a million a year coaching this guy. You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't think of that at the time. I can understand what the thought would be here. And, you know, that that may in fact be true. Um, it's hard to I, directly say that, but yeah, I feel like the door is open. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. You know, the door probably was open there. I think that the takeaway for me is we all have so much to give. And I think the more we realize as humans the contributions we can make, even the tiniest little, hey, thanks for doing what you do. You know, on the scale of contributions, Steve getting the root beer for me today, not enormous, not huge, yet the impact was incredible. Somebody might look at that and say, well, it was, you know, a, a buck for a can of root beer or wait, we're in New York, $17 for a can of root beer, right? You know, and that kind of thing. One Bitcoin. Right, one, one, one Bitcoin for a root beer. Um, but in that moment, it was like, no, it was a thoughtful gesture. It was something meaningful. And I think that's the philosophy of the entire book, which is how can you create these remarkable moments where you show a level of thoughtfulness? I think not only thoughtfulness, but integrity you saying um you know like when in the driver's license in the driver's 
example, you saying, I admit doing wrongdoing, or in this case with the billionaire saying, you've provided so much help for me, you're not trying to act like you're a big shot. You say, what can I possibly do for you? I have no idea what I could possibly do for you and kind of asking his advice in a sincere way. That's why I couldn't let you just give me full credit for the root beer. Which I, I appreciate. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. And here's the thing. Some might look at it and say, oh, well, when James did that, he kind of deflected the compliment to him and it went off to Steve. But here's the deal. Steve's in the room. So Steve feels appreciated by you. No, I don't. You feel, <laughs> just kidding. He doesn't. Um, no, but, you know, and James feels appreciated. And it it. Now you appreciate James for his honesty. Exactly. And it just feeds back on itself. So I appreciate James' honesty and integrity for sharing like, oh, hey, by the way, this thing you gave me credit for, actually, I I was the one who handed it to you, but I wasn't the one who got it. So let me thank other people. I, I think I think we need to say thank you a lot more in our lives. I think we need to appreciate all the people in our lives who are doing incredible things to make us be able to do and be who we are. And, and I know we're, we're still on phase one assess, but this is related to you uh, using not just social media, but conversation as a listening mechanism rather than a broadcasting mechanism. So you're listening to the client or whoever, the relationships, problems, enough to be able to make a decision based on them on how you're going to act next. And so phase two, admit. So admit is when the customer admits that they have a problem or a need and they believe that you are the solution. So they decide to do business with you. Do you ever ask, why did you call me? Uh, I'll often say, you know, wh why did you think that uh, talking to me would be useful? What, what are your, you know, what have you heard or what do you believe here now that you've decided that you want to do business together that we're going to be able to do together? What are you excited about? What's your, you know, it's kind of cliche to say, I was just on a call earlier this morning where I asked somebody, I said, if, uh, if we were to fast forward six months and we were to be having a meeting and you were to say, oh my gosh, this is the most successful venture we've ever been in. How specifically would you describe it? What would have That's happened? That's a great technique too. Put the image in their head of the, what the future looks the, like. Exactly. And tell me like what matters to you. And then and I'll become be, invested a exactly. little bit in that and, future. And some, there were multiple people on this call. Some of the people on the call I know from prior conversations thought it was going to be, well, if X has occurred, they'll be happy. And what happened in that answer was, yeah, X is important to us, but if Y has occurred, we'll be even more happy. And the Y was something that we didn't have, uh, we weren't dialed in nearly as much on. And so by asking the question, it was kind of like, oh, that's the definition of happiness. See, going, think, going back to the story of sleeping on the couch. What do you mean by the definition of happiness? Defining, figure out what the definition of happiness and what the definition of success is for the people that you're dealing with. You know, sometimes I'm in a mm. situation where, you know what'll make me happy? What'll make me happy is that I don't need a lot of handholding. Just deliver on what you say you were gonna do. Like, that's it. I don't need the extras. I don't need the frills. I just need the base commitment. If I get on an airplane, like I am want to do on a regular basis, my main threshold is I want to fly through the sky like a bird and land safely on the other side of the country. That's it. Oh, if you give me some peanuts and some, you know, a drink along the way, well, maybe that's nice. Uh, but my criteria for a successful flight is the plane landed and I walked off the plane. So anything more than that fills my day with joy and amazement. Because it's like, oh, and they had movies on the plane. Oh, and they remembered my drink. And they called me by name. I think you reach a different point, though, which is that, you know, 
happiness is related to keeping expectations low. Because yeah, you know, I, I, I like think if I go on Delta, I I need those special cookies that only Delta. Fair, has. fair enough. The Delta cookies. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, of Delta, and they are my airline of choice. Yeah, I think what's interesting is. I don't know if it's about, I, I've been trying to figure this out and I haven't come around to it yet. You know, people talk about managing expectations a lot. And the problem I think with that is you take two words that kind of have negative emotional charge, managing and expectations, and you combine them. Mm. And so sometimes when we say managing expectations, it's like you, there's gonna be a less than experience. We're gonna have to tamp down your expectations. Um, setting expectations, feels a little bit better, but not much. Uh, co-creating expectations feels a little too hoochie-poochie and like- So what word can you use with- I don't know. I've been, I've been trying to think about this. Like what is the, you know, and that maybe I need to sit down with my menu pad and write out 10 different potential ideas for what it could be. But you know, what, what is the better way to say, I don't expect the expectations to be low. I just expect them to be clear. Mm. Like I want to know what they are. And if your expectations- and my expectations are in alignment. Well, we can do great things, and then we can add on. But also, like, let's take let's take relationships as an example. Let's take marriage. Yeah, relationships example. are great. So, so let's say someone's married fifteen years, and I don't know. The husband wants to have sex seven times a week, and the wife's like, you know what, two times a week. And let's say in every other respect, they're in love with each other. They have kids. They want to stay together. Clearly, their expectations are not in alignment but that's something they can control to some extent. The husband can lower some expectations. The wife can raise some expectations, I don't know. And their marriage can work out. But if they stick strongly to their uh, expectations, and even though everything else is going correct, their marriage is screwed, so literally. Right, right. I, I think at the I'm a big fan of the phrase, um, strong beliefs loosely held, hmm. right? So you can have that goal of, well, this is what marriage should be but be willing to to let go of that as things change and as time evolves and you know the the expectations i i think the problem is we have a lot of uh dating advice and we have a lot of dating coaching and how do you win the prize you know it's kind of like marketing and sales in a business Let, let's pop out of a relationship context and then i'll come right back in if you were to go on amazon and you were to search the word marketing in books, and then you were to search the word sales in books, and you were to add all those books together, the number of hits you got, it's just over 1.3 million. Mm. If we were to search customer experience, customer loyalty, customer service, account relationship managed, post-sale relationship, all the phrases you can imagine about what happens after the sale, it's barely over 30,000 books. Mm. So it's like a one to 42, one to 43 ratio. Is it any wonder that businesses are much better at acquiring customers than they are keeping them when all the research, all of the books, all of the speakers, all of the conferences are dedicated to that focus? I think the same holds true in personal relationships. There isn't the book on what to do in year 15 of the marriage. There isn't the book on what to do when um, there's uh, been a miscarriage and an affair and someone's parent had gotten sick and had to move into the house. Mm. And one of the kids isn't special needs, but is probably on a spectrum. And uh, you know, the job isn't going as well. Like she all this the, book. <laughs> yeah, like all the craziness that comes into life, there isn't a blueprint and we're left to just fumble along and figure it out. 
And I think that's why having honest, open conversations with people is the way to get to like, okay, so what are you doing to keep your relationship strong? It usually gets pitched as what are you doing to spice up your relationship? And that has some preconceived notions in it. What are you doing to grow your relationship? What are you doing to evolve your relationship? You know, the relationship I have with a friend from college is very different than when we were in college, but it's okay because we've both grown and evolved. So we didn't quite finish admit it, but you're basically, you basically kind of hit upon these things, which is find out where your expectations are aligned and how you can both help each other. Absolutely. And celebrate the decision that they decide to make work. They decided to work with you. How do you celebrate that? Um, you celebrate it in front of them and you thank them for it. Right. So thank you so much. I'm really excited to work together. Let's raise a glass and toast. Let's do some mo momentous, you know, let's do something to mark the moment. Do you ever um, do business with someone from Japan, actually from the country of Japan? I have not yet done. Because they come with They come gift. with gifts and and they they start the relationship off yeah. that way. Yeah. Uh, I have some weird stories about that, but not for- For another for day. For this podcast. <laughs> uh, affirm, phase three. Affirm. So here's the crazy thing. If I were to ask everybody listening, have you heard of the phrase buyer's remorse? Almost everyone would say yes. And then if I were to say, do you have any systems or processes in your business to address buyer's remorse? Less than 1% say yes. Mm. We've all heard of it. We so, know it's an issue. So this is a very interesting thing because I've dealt with this. This happens the, in most frequently in my life when let's say I'm selling a company and uh, I, do, I know they're going to have buyer's remorse because it's just a natural part of the of selling process. So- uh, I do everything I can to help them avoid buyer's remorse. So I, but I don't address it with them. You're suggesting address it with address it. How do you address full out? It? Yeah, I, I think number one, you name the elephant in the room. Number two, you say, look, here's the deal. You know, one of the things. This is where that thank you for your business, thank you note can come in. Uh, just the conversation. One of the things, so there's, in the book, there are 46 case studies of companies that are incredible at creating these type of remarkable experiences. And one of the ones that does a great job at it that most of your listeners will have experienced is Amazon. So what happens is you go on Amazon and you order a product, you put in your shopping cart, you click buy, and then you see the little confirmation screen that shows up on your website. Then you get an email that confirms that the order went through and exactly what you ordered and when it's going to arrive. Then you receive a text message if you signed up for that service of when it actually ships. Then you receive another text message of when it's out for delivery. Then you receive another text message when it actually gets delivered. All of that time period where they're communicating with you is in the affirm stage. The affirm stage is from the time that they hand you the money to the time when they get what they wanted. It's really true. Like Amazon does a great job of that and other retailers you kind of get this confirmation, yeah, we processed, like let's say furniture retailer was a, a big high-priced item. Uh, you get the confirmation that they received your order and then you never hear from them again. Right, it could until be, and it could be six weeks up, later. It could yeah. be six weeks later. And during that time, because you're a human being, you're wondering, was it still moving on schedule? Is the order still there? I don't yeah. know. What if something happened? What if it went wrong? What if they have the wrong address? So, 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 but is that... Is, so Amazon's dealing with the buyer's remorse, but they're not necessarily addressing it. Would you say, listen, we're going to have a buyer's remorse or you're going to have buyer's remorse. How can I help you? Do you ever address that directly? What I think I might directly? do is, so I, I would maybe caution folks to be uh, careful about actually using the phrase buyer's so remorse. Don't label it. Don't label it, but address it. So what I mean by that is, hey, so we just decided to build this website together and we're going to have our kickoff meeting in two weeks. 
between now and then, let me explain to you what we're going to be doing to get prepared. Ah, that's We're going to be doing ABC. What we'd love you to do is this one thing so that it lets everybody know the, you've signed the contract, you've given us the money, the work has begun, even though you can't see the work. So, so what, what I call this is overpromise and overdeliver. Correct. Because everybody else underpromises and then tries to quote unquote overdeliver. But if you, it's not really that hard to overpromise, like give the promise more than they expected, just a little bit more, and even overdeliver on that. You were going to overdeliver anyway. And this so, is where systematizing this stuff I think is so valuable. Having a clear checklist that everybody on your team knows, okay, it's day seven of the relationship. What should be happening? How should we be making the customer feel? What should we be doing right now? So yeah. that we're continuing to make sure we're executing on this across the entire relationship. Uh, so I feel that blends into phase four, activate, which is that first set of conversations, like in that two week period where you're, you know, between the time that the kickoff, uh, the sale and the kickoff meeting, when you start the communications that they're not really expecting, that's the activate. Right. So I think uh, activate is when they have the first major interaction with you. So the kickoff meeting or the item arrives from Amazon, we can, we can precede kind of some of those touch points with little reminders leading up to it. But to me, activate, the reason I chose that word is I want you to energize the relationship. This is the first chance for you to perform and perform well. I don't know about you. We both ran agencies. You know, when people used to um, come to have meetings, we wanted to let them know that we were excited and that we were celebrating that we're there. I walked into, I was in Washington DC yesterday and I walked into a, a situation and the receptionist stood up and said, hi, Joey, it's great to meet you. And I thought to myself, oh, this is someone who's done their homework. They knew I were, was coming today. They've at least seen a photo. I've never met this person, but instantly it made me feel like, oh, you're being taken care of. They ushered me into a boardroom where there was already uh, a glass of ice water set out and a water for me. And the person was like, by the way, this is some water for you. We have more here uh, if you need it. Um, let's get you set up for your presentation. And I felt very handheld and very taken care of. And that created an energy that I was then able to um, kind of absorb and feed back to the people who were going to be attending the meeting in the boardroom. So you're suggesting, for instance, if I have a customer to kind of sort of sort of uh, manage the experience in such a way that they feel completely taken care of and safe. Absolutely. And they feel welcome. And, and by the way, this works in relationships, totally. dates, to friendships. 100%. Let me tell a quick relationship story. So my good friend, Neen James, who wrote an amazing book called Attention Pays, uh, which I think is just a fabulous title, right? Um, I went and stayed at her house recently. This this is the podcast of Joey telling about all the friends' houses he stayed at in recent weeks. If anybody has an open room. Anybody has an open room, I'm happy to stay there. Um, so I show up at her house and she's like, oh, welcome. You know, Shows me around the house and, and takes me to the spare bedroom. And she's like, here's your room. And we open the door and I kid you not, it was like staying at a fine hotel. There's a robe all folded up and slippers. There is uh, you know, a little note from her in a you know mm. personal, thank you note or you know written note like welcome to our home in an envelope with my name on the front of it there's some snacks laid out there's a mini fridge in the spare bedroom that of course has what water and root beer in it you know i'm like holy cow it's like i'm staying at the nicest hotel in the history of the world and i've been at this house for 5 minutes and in that moment I'll, a true confession i thought man i need to up my game when we have people stay at our house 
because this is how you make someone feel welcomed. This is how you make them feel special. So there are opportunities in every aspect of our life to make the person who's having an interaction with us see and feel and understand how much we care about them. That's so important. Okay, phase five, acclimate. So this is the phase that most businesses drop the ball on. After that first major interaction, we often get into the meat of the product or the service delivery. So these are the weeks of building the website or maybe when they start actually using the product right, and getting and comfortable with it. Things can break down, everybody's break covering down. their ass. Yeah, and this is often where most businesses have moved on to chase the next new customer. Uh, the person who's caught doing the delivery in this stage is usually someone who wasn't part of the sales process and is kind of like the project manager who's brought on at the end. You need to acclimate the customer to doing business with you, right? You've done this type of product or this type of service hundreds or thousands or millions of times. But for them, it's the first time they've ever been in this interaction. Same holds true for dating. You know, you get into date four or five, you're probably slipping into your dating patterns, patterns that the other person doesn't know mm. and isn't maybe comfortable with. So, Or let's say moving in together. Or, may, or moving in together and you're just like, oh, what's the big deal? We're moving in together. And they're like, I've never lived with someone before. Oh, okay. So here's some conversations we're going to need to have about like, how do we like the vanity to be kept? When should the dishes be done? Immediately after dinner? Or is it okay to leave them until after the movie? Or is it okay to leave them until the this next morning? another book. Right? Going. All the, all the different things that we have beliefs around that are formulated by any number of crazy life experiences we've had. But how do we make sure that the person we're in relationship knows what we're coming to the table with? And how do we pull out or extract from them what they're coming to the table with? How do you so pull out from them something? if they're not I used, think, Like let's say you're dealing with, let's say uh, Google or Amazon's your client. So they're used to everybody just... Oh my God, Google's my client. Like they, they, they're like the king. How would you pull something out of a, a, a mega client? Right, I, I think what you need to do, so I was approached by a very big client recently who said they wanted to have the delivery mechanism of my content be a way that I'm not familiar with. What I mean by that is normally if I come in and work with a company, we do a workshop, we bring everybody in the room and we spend two or three days together. And they were like, yeah, we have people all over the world. We're not gonna be able to do that. It's gonna have to be over Skype and you're gonna get an hour. And I was like, look, I will agree to do this, but I need you to know right here and right now, if you expect the same type of results that you get from a three-day workshop in an hour over Skype, you're going to be very unhappy. We're not going to be able to do that. So I really don't want to do it this way, but I will do a call like this and we'll see how it goes. And if we like this one, we'll potentially do more, but I have a lot of concerns about this. And they were like, well, this is how we like to do business. And I said, I get it. And I'm willing to do it once. But I want everybody to be clear that it may not work. Can you, like, given that they do have people all over the world that they don't want to pull out of their jobs, uh, is there a way you could deal, what, what's a solution? Could you deal more closely with the top executives in so, that area? So the counter solution I offered is let me be the one that flies. Mm. So why don't you put me in four different rooms around the world over course, the course of a month? You could charge more. You could charge more and you'll get more value and I'll be able to be in the room and see people. One that somebody asked me, they said, um, 
they knew I was coming to do your podcast today and they were like, wait, you have to go to New York for this? I said, have to is a really interesting word. <laughs> um, I want to go to New York to do this. And I also know James does his podcasts in person because we are having a very different experience sitting here, having an yeah, in-person absolutely. interaction than over Skype or Zoom. And I've done plenty of podcasts over Skype and Zoom and that's great and fine. And this is a different experience. I'll tell you, this is the fourth or fifth year I've been doing podcasts. And let's say the first two years I did over Skype. And since I moved to in-person, it downloads almost immediately tripled or quadrupled because it is, you know, only 10% of communication is verbal. So everything else is, is exactly. happening. Exactly. It's a completely different experience. Um, and you know, we're, we're in a studio, the, the whole thing. Um, Joey, we're, we're, this studio is almost out of time for booking, but I want to get to your phases six through eight, <laughs> accomplish, adopt, and advocate Let's give a quick overview. Okay, yeah. So just, accomplish is when the customer achieves the goal that they had when they originally decided to do business with you. The same applies in our personal relationship. If their goal when they originally went on the date with you was to get you to propose, the only way you reach accomplishment is if there's an actual proposal. Um, you know, if their goal was to launch their website and have you build their website, well, then when the website launches, the goal is accomplished. And I feel that a lot of this, you know phases one through five kind of create phase six because you have to set expectations. You have to have those what's called crucial conversations. You have to Absolutely. begin the interactions. You have to basically make sure you know, you're, 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 you're acclimating to their culture. You have to know what they want to accomplish. You have a belief of what they want to accomplish, but lots of times our belief of what they want to accomplish isn't actually the belief. Somebody walks into a hardware store and they say, I'm looking for a drill. What are they trying to accomplish? Well, they want a hole. Right. They don't want to drill. Like they don't care what drill it is. If somebody says, I need to drill, they probably don't care. That's really interesting because let's take, let's, there's a lot of examples of this, but in the relationship one, let's say girls' goal is the proposal. The guy's goal might be something else. Um, clearly they wouldn't make it to phase six if they were way off right? Because they would not have gotten past phase five acclimation or they would not have gotten past phase three affirm or phase two admit. Right. But um, perhaps people have to re understand really what the other person is in the business of. So for instance, this the girl might not want a proposal. She might just want to feel safe and that there's a commitment you know, in the future. Absolutely. And the guy might want to feel like he's not being, um, you know, tied down in some ways that he's a, maybe has been in the past. I'm just using an extreme example. It's not necessarily- Yeah, and, and well, I think even this, this is, relationships are a good example because I think the presumption is, and this is a sweeping stereotype approaching folks, so forgive me for the sweeping stereotype, but I think the presumption is the woman in, the, uh, in a relationship want, or the feminine energy is a better way of saying it. The feminine energy in the relationship wants certainty, wants, fair enough. We all have masculine mm -hmm. and feminine energy. The feminine energy wants commitment, wants certainty, wants certitude, wants that long lasting thing. The masculine energy wants excitement and variety and something interesting. And people believe, well, those two can't coexist. Even in the idea of saying, well, if the goal is to accomplish is the proposal, I would encourage people to dive deeper because it's not the proposal. Because the proposal is the next step that gets you to the marriage, which is the next step that gets you to potentially the kids, which is the next step that gets you to the 10-year anniversary, the 20-year anniversary, the 50-year anniversary. And if you don't have a clear conversation about what is the end game goal here, 
it's really difficult to help the other person accomplish what they wanna do. The other thing is once they accomplish the first goal they had, guess what they do? Come up with new goals they wanna accomplish. Mm. So, hey, we got married, great. Now, when are we gonna have kids? Okay, now we've had kids. When are we gonna do the next thing? Well, what is the next thing? Is it the house? Is it the house with the pool? Is it the car? Is it the three weeks vacation? Is it the kids in private school? Is it the kids going off to college and so we get to vacation and travel together in retirement? Like what is the next thing? And I think all too often in our relationships, we we get locked in what the original goal to accomplish was, especially masculine energy and men do this. You know, well, what? We got married. So what's a big deal? Like I, I, I put the ring on it. You know, we're, we're, we're good to go. And it's like, yeah, that, those were the ante up chips to sit down at the table and play the game. That wasn't the end all be all goal. So once we get accomplished, we then move to advocate or, uh, or excuse me, adopt. And the adopt phase is where the customer says, I'm all in with you. I'm 100% loyal to you and your brand and your offering. Um, they take responsibility for the relationship. They're excited about continuing the relationship. Uh, in many ways, these are your awesome, loyal, long-term customers. And I always say uh, the best the best new customers are your older customers. 100%. So for instance, often my most downloaded podcasts are the second or third time I've had someone back on, which of course means you should come back on next time. I would time love to York. come back on again. Because um, this has been a great podcast. Uh, phase eight, advocate, obviously. Advocate is when they become a, a zealous raving fan, right? Where they become your external marketing and sales team. And I, I find that a good way to do this, particularly if you've gotten to pass through phase seven and you've successfully done this, is to just ask them advice. Like, hey, how can I get more customers? And they will have like a thousand ideas for you. Absolutely. What what are what are some, you know, you've you've had the expertise of doing XYZ. What you know, I'm just kind of getting started on this. Yeah, what, yeah. what can you tell me? That's you know, it goes back to that humility that, you know, kind of, hey, what what do you have here that you can help me with? Now, one now these are the phases, but re, but there's a tactical aspect to this which you get through in all the book, through the rest of the book. We could talk for five hours about this book because I believe so much how these principles apply to every area of life. But essentially what I like and what I remember from your talk also is it's all about just staying in touch. So like for a hundred days, stay in like high touch with the customer, the relationship, whatever. But my question is, and you, you talk about this, but after day 100, let's just look again in the relationship context. After day 100, have you set expectations too high? Oh, it's <laughs> a great- You've given flowers a, every day. It's a great diamond question. Diamond rings, dresses, right. parties. Right, and now what do you do? How do you keep topping it? Uh, you know what's interesting? The, so the first 100 days, which is the timeframe that I talk about in the book, uh, is important because that's where the foundation of the relationship is established. The two big questions I get is, okay, what happens after day 100? And what if someone's been a customer for longer than 100 days and I've already missed that first 100 days? Mm, what do I do that's now? That's a good one. The answer to those two questions is the same thing. You have to keep doubling down into the relationship. You have to continue to create moments of connection. You have to continue to look for ways to surprise and delight them, for ways to do something unexpected. Now, let's be clear. Not all of these things are going to work, and that's okay. The prize goes to those who try, right? I don't know about you. There have been plenty of scenarios where I've tried to do something special in, you know, for my wife or for a client or for uh, a friend. What's the last time you surprised? And it hasn't worked. Wife? You know, when's the last time I surprised her? 
That's a good question. I think I surprised her the other day um, with, she's going to an event in Ireland and I said, I want to send you in the lay down seats at the front of the plane. Like I want to use the points to do that. And she was like, well, I don't really, and my wife is incredibly humble and amazing. And she's like, I don't really need that. And I was like, I think we should do this. It's the first time she's been, we have two boys, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. It's the first time she's been away from the boys for an extended period of time. And I'm like, I want you to treat yourself. You're an amazing mom. You're doing all these incredible things. I want you to just like pamper yourself and flying from Colorado to Dublin is a long flight. And I'm like, I want you to kind of feel that you've been taken care of. So I think that's that's probably the last surprise. And what's the last time you surprised a client? Uh, The last time I surprised a client, good question. Um, Well, I'm about to surprise one on the call after this when I tell them about a deal I've been working on behind the scenes to get them a bunch of access and status to a community that they want that they don't know I've been working on. So that's probably, you know, and again, it's not always, it doesn't always have to be things that you give them. I think lots of times people look at this, they're like, oh, well, I only have so much money to buy gifts for my client. It's it's not about the money. It's about the thoughtfulness and about doing things. So for this client, I it, give you an example. I had a lunch with someone today who I think I'm going to be able to get uh, an invitation for them to mastermind talks, which is, a, as you well know, is a tough invitation, 6,000 person waiting list. I feel like we're grandfathered in, right? Like, I, I hope so. I, I hope so. I keep I feel trying like to if do I a call, good job and get if in. If I call you know? Jason and say, I'm coming. I want to come. I think gonna he's going to make no? space for you. I think he'll make space for you. You too, um, right? I, I, one would hope. One yeah. would hope. But you know, I never want to take it for granted, right? So I want to keep trying to provide value to him. Um, but there's somebody who I think would provide tremendous value to the community. I think he would love this person. And so I said to the person, I think I can get you in. I'm not sure, but I'm gonna do my best to do that. The way to make it even better is if I would have just gotten them in beforehand um, and then presented it to them. But I wanted to let them know that I was working on it because if it doesn't come through, I at least want them to know I tried. How do you disappoint someone? So let's say that same person you didn't feel was qualified for whatever reason. And they said, hey, can you get me to be a speaker at XYZ? And you knew he wouldn't be appropriate for XYZ. And in fact, it would hurt your relationship with XYZ to even bring this person up. How would you say to that person, look, I don't think you're appropriate for this, but what would you say? Nine times out of 10, I would absolutely tell them. Mm -hmm. And I would say, here's the deal. I would try to learn more about why they think they want to be there. Mm -hmm. Because usually if they're not a good fit, they have a misconceived notion about what they're going to get out of it too. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, if I spoke at that event, then I would land that client. And I'm like, okay, so let me explain how this works. Speaking at that event does not lead to leading that client. I know people who have that client, that's not the pathway to them. If that's your goal, here's what you need to do. Let's talk about a strategy. Let's talk about what they actually need because by the way, it's not the thing you're selling. But let's see if you can solve this other problem that they have, then that's your in. Or how could you partner with someone else that's already in? Or what could I try to give them, to your point, I try to give them the 10 ideas of other things they could do Mm. other than the thing they think that they want to do because that's a faster path to success for them. Wow, I never thought of that, the 10 ideas technique as a way to say no. I love that. Um, You know what's really interesting about this podcast? Two things. One is um, this is not a business podcast. It's It's a podcast about peak performance. So we've had everybody from Tony Hawk to Gary Kasparov to uh, Arianna Huffington to you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So we've had a, a, a wide variety of sports figures, writers, artists, musicians, people who have achieved like the best in the world status in whatever they do. It's really not a business podcast. I almost never ever 
talk business on this podcast. But I knew with you, Joey, there's a an enormous fount of wisdom. You're like a modern day philosopher. And I knew with this book, Never Lose a Customer Again, just even even from the top, all you said was, it's going to be kind of like the talk I gave five years ago. It's like, no problem, because that applies so much to every area of life. So I, I really hope people buy this book, think about it and how it can be useful in every area of life. Like this is, this is definitely going to be useful for me in every area of life. And Joe, are you going to come back on the podcast? When are you, when are you coming I, back to New York? I would be thrilled to come back on the I, podcast. I, like- I, I am an a avid listener of the podcast. I, I full disclosure, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts. I love listening to your podcast because I, from the day we met, I love the way you think. I love the way you ask questions. And one of the things that I think is best about being on your podcast that I love is, I didn't know where the conversation was going to go today, but I knew it was going to be fun. And I knew you were going to ask questions. And if I said something that had an obvious follow-up, you weren't going to just go to a script and say, and now the next question, that you would actually pull on those threads, which is what I think makes life interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I also happen to know there's about a thousand stories that you have to tell that I want to get to. I almost wish we can do a part two right now, but when are you coming back to the city? Uh, not soon enough. We'll figure out how to make it happen. All right. And And the other thing I want to tell you is, as as I, I, you may have remember from the emails, initially during this day and yesterday and tomorrow, I was going to try to break the Guinness Book of World Records of longest running recording podcasts in a row. Yes, and so we booked a whole bunch of podcasts, and you're the only appointment we stuck. Woo! <laughs> I decided not to break the record, and for various reasons, and you're the only appointment we we kept out of all the ones that, that well, we booked. I I greatly appreciate you uh, you keeping me, and who knows, maybe we can do an extended show as part of the record chase yes. next time. So next time. thanks so much. Thanks, Joy. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.